Father, we thank You for the miraculous nature of our salvation. Thank You it was beyond us to save ourselves. But in Your providence, You sent Your Son, born of a virgin, under the law to secure our salvation. We thank You, Jesus, that You who knew no sin became a curse for us by dying on a cross. And you were cursed by none other than your Father who poured out all of His wrath upon you so that we could know the Father as our Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for revealing Christ to us, to bear witness of Him to us. And we pray that the bearing that witness will continue this morning as we look once again at the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Late last summer, an acquaintance of mine, in the absence of her husband, took her five sons to a nearby lake in northern Colorado. The family owns a sailing boat. It's a sailing boat that's not all that fancy, but it's large enough to have a cabin underneath the deck. And she took her sons, two of them to begin with, who were preschool age, like five and three or four, and the boat was not tied to a dock. There was no dock in the area, so what the family would do, they would moor or anchor the boat about a hundred yards offshore, so they'd have to swim out to get to the boat. And so she took a paddle board and put the boys on the paddle board, and they swam out together. She got them on the boat, got them situated said, now go under the deck and sit there, and your brothers and I will be out as soon as I can go and get them and bring them out. Well, without any warning, a huge storm burst on the scene of that lake. And when the mother looked at what was happening, she was already ashore getting other sons ready to go out to the boat. You can imagine how panic-stricken she became. People around... Her saw what was happening, and they tried to get out to the boat, but the wind was blowing in their faces and pushed them back. Every effort they made was defeated by the elements. Well, they had to wait the storm out, watch that boat, that sailboat, be battered by the waves of that storm on that lake. And finally, when the storm subsided to the degree that she could get back out there with some help from some men who were seeking to help in the rescue, she got there and she didn't know what she would find when she got in the boat. She got aboard, went underneath the deck, looked into the cabin area, and everything that had been on the shelf had fallen off. And she was looking for her boys, and she said their eyes were as big as saucers. And she said, how are you as she embraced them? And she shed tears as she embraced them. And they said, Mommy, we're okay. Because we remembered the story of Jesus calming the storm on the lake. This is like five and four-year-old kids. It's amazing, isn't it? A true story of Jesus coming to the rescue of two boys, children. Jesus says, unless we become like little children, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that means we need to be humble and believe, not without 
using our minds. It has nothing to do with ignoring the fact that this might not have really happened. Believe me, it happened. We know it did because the Word of God teaches it. And Jesus, who is resurrected from the dead, He endorses it because He was the one who was involved in it. Crises have a way of shaping our lives. If you were to remove the element of difficulty from our lives, hardship, affliction, controversy, any word you might want to choose or a combination of those words, were it not for crises in our lives, we would not reach our full potential, especially those of us who know and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We see in this story... Found in John chapter 6, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the place where we left off last Sunday in our study of the Gospel of John, John chapter 6. Last week we saw how Jesus had miraculously fed 5,000 men plus many women and children. Conservatively speaking, we could guesstimate 8,000, 9,000 people whom he fed. He did it through his apostles. And you may remember that there was a lot left over, in fact, enough left over that three big baskets full of food remained. This marvelous miracle continued to have impact on the apostles. And the Lord took care of them. And now we see what happens after the people having been the recipients of this grace of God through the miracle of Jesus, converting five loaves of barley bread and two small fish into enough food to feed thousands of people until they were satisfied. The Scripture says He fed them until they were filled. He didn't just give them some crumbs. He gave them all they could hold and more. And the result of that was that they said, This is the prophet. And Jesus, perceiving what was happening, said, I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to make me king by force. And so Jesus fled the scene because Jesus is not into a world kingdom. Rather, he's committed to a kingdom that influences the world, but is not of this world. That's the background of this text of Scripture. So on that same day, we pick up the action in verse 16 of John 6. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat... They started to cross the sea to Capernaum. Remember, Capernaum was seven miles away. It was the headquarters for Jesus' ministry. It was the place that he returned to repeatedly after taking his men out on mission. They always came back to this fishing village on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, seven miles away from where this miracle occurred at the feeding of the 5,000 near the village of Bethsaida. So, We see the men getting in the boat. What we don't learn from John, we do learn from Matthew and Mark, the other two gospel writers who tell this story. What we are told is that Jesus made them get into the boat. And the word translated made means forced or compelled them to get into the boat. There was something that was leading them not to want to get in the boat. And let me suggest what that something was That was that they, like the people who were trying to force Jesus to be king, 
become king, had in their minds that the Messiah would in fact be a deliverer, would in fact save the people of God, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, from the oppression of the Romans. Jesus had another plan in mind, but that's what was on their minds. This was something which caused them not to want to get in the boat. And what we need to understand is who these guys were to begin with. Who was Matthew? What was his job before he got in Jesus' company? He was a tax collector. And I'm speculating. There's no biblical basis at all for this. So probably I should stop right there. But I'm going to go ahead anyway, okay? And my speculation is that he could have thought something like this. I'll be the treasurer of this kingdom. And I'll be the one who takes the taxes. And I'm going to right all the wrongs that I did when I was in cahoots with the Roman government, stole all that money from the people, and they will be fairly taxed, and I'm going to oversee that. It was a place of prestige that he looked toward, perhaps. And then there was Simon the Zealot. He carried a dagger wherever he went. He was vowed to kill Romans. He was a bloodthirsty man. Not in the worst sense of the word, but he hated the Romans. So he thought, well, the Romans will be done away with, or at least I'll be part of their being done away with. I'll be the leader of this army of people whom Jesus has just fed. 5,000 able-bodied men. And there'll be more to follow because of who he is. And then what about James and John? Later in the Gospels, we are told how their mother came on their behalf to Jesus and said, Sir, when you come into your kingdom, she had the misconception just like her sons did, when you come into the kingdom, would you give my sons, John and James, a place on the right and left hand of your throne? We don't care which one sits where, but just let them have the places of honor is really what she was asking. So you see, in the minds of these apostles, and I'm sure the others had things going on in their heads, they had some dreams as well. In their minds, they were believing that they were going to occupy, occupy places of power, prestige, and greater possessions because of their connection to this Messiah. And they were reluctant to go in. It's also possible that they were having a certain uneasiness about going across the lake at nighttime. Remember, it's evening. This was the Passover season. We saw this last week in verse 4 of chapter 16. And the moon would be full, so there'd be some light for sure. But traveling at night was not the desired time to travel on that body of water because it was known by these men, many of whom had made their living fishing those waters, most of whom were very familiar with the activity atmospherically in this area, how storms could just burst on the scene unexpectedly with no warning. And so maybe there was a certain uneasiness about this too. But Jesus made them get into the boat. Do you know that the Lord has to give permission at least For you to find yourself in a crisis. Did you know that? Later in the Gospel of Luke, we are told how 
when Jesus is facing His soon death, the night before. It was the night He was about to be betrayed. It was the night when He was going to be denied by the leader of the pack of His apostles, Peter. And He looked at Peter and He said, Simon, Simon, Satan has gained permission to sift you like wheat. And when he said that to Simon, he did not simply say it to him. He called him by name because he was the representative apostle. He was the leader. But we know because of the language which Jesus used when he said the simple pronoun you, he did not use the singular pronoun, which he would have chosen if he was only singling Simon Peter out. But he used the plural, and this is what I imagine his doing. He said that to Peter, and then he scanned with his eyes, the eyes of the other eleven. All of you, Satan has gained permission to sift like wheat. Now, guess who they had to get permission from? They had to get permission from God. Satan had to get permission from God to sift those apostles like wheat on the eve that Jesus, of his death, on the, that evening when he was betrayed, handed over. They skedaddled. Well, go back to this event. The same is true there. The Lord made them go into the boat. He made them go on the lake. And the Lord knew what was going to happen. He had a purpose in sending them out into that difficult situation. We avoid crises. Do you try to avoid crises in your life? Is there anybody in here who just is sadomasochistic and you just run like crazy for a crisis? There's some of you who are a little off that way, but most of us, we don't borrow trouble. But the reality is, we are to learn how to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance or perseverance, and we're to let perseverance or endurance have its perfect result so that we might be mature, lacking in nothing. Jesus knows that we must have trials in our lives if we're going to become like Him. Because, after all, it was He who learned obedience through what He suffered. So, we see Jesus making these people get into the boat. He had to forcibly, I can imagine His forcibly making them get in. They start to come back out and He puts them back in. They're like a lot of children. They were, in effect, like little children. And this is true of our lives, too. Well, here's what else we learn from this passage of Scripture about crises. Crises often occur... When we obey Christ. To their credit, they got in the boat and they obeyed the Lord. To their credit. Let's read a little further in the text, picking up in the middle of verse 17. And it had already become dark. Let's stop here just a moment. Whenever the word dark or night, when either of those words appears in the Gospel of John, it's always speaking of the absence of Christ. In the way in which Christ is reported to us initially in the Gospel of John is this way. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, 
and the darkness could not overpower it. God is light, the Bible says, and in him there is no darkness at all. The Bible tells us about Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. In the beginning he was with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Jesus Christ is fully God, and Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Jesus Christ brings light to dark situations. Many decades ago, in the early days of the National Park Service conducting tours of Carlsbad Caverns, there was a group touring. They were being led by an expert guide explaining things as they made their way through the caverns. They came to a deep point in the caverns, and the guide was giving a lecture, and all of a sudden the lights went out. There was a child, a little girl, preschooler, and her brother, probably four or five years older, standing in the group. They were with their parents, but the girl began to whimper and began to cry because she was frightened. And who wouldn't be? You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. It was pitch dark. And then her brother comforted her with these words. He said, it's going to be okay, sister. There's someone down here who knows how to turn on the light. Jesus Christ knows how to turn on the light. And he does that in our crises By his presence, as we're going to see, just like he did in the lives of these apostles in their crisis. And the scripture says, and Jesus had not yet come to them. That suggests that there had been some conversation between Jesus and the apostles that they were going to rendezvous somewhere. And they were expecting Jesus to come, but he had not shown up. In verse 18, and the sea began to be stirred up. Because a strong wind was blowing. This was very common, as I mentioned earlier, on the Sea of Galilee. Remember, at the northern end of the sea, Mount Hermon juts out of the landscape. 9,200 feet high. The Sea of Galilee is 680 feet under sea level. That is a low depression, isn't it? A deep point. And what happens is, when the frigid airs come off of that great peak, which at this season of the year would still be snow-capped, and those winds blow down and the ravines form like wind tunnels as the wind hurdles itself through these ravines. At the same time, it's very common for southeasterly winds to come from the deserted desert area, the arid area, and those warm winds converge with the cool winds over the warm water, which has been warmed by those southeasterly winds, and these ferocious storms break out without warning. And they don't have rain associated with them in many cases. They just have a lot of turmoil. As we read from the Gospel of Matthew, the Scripture says that the waves battered the boat. And the word translated battered actually means tormented. They tormented the boat. And, of course, the occupants of the boat. These men were straining at the oars, is what the Scripture says. And the word translated straining in Matthew's Gospel means they were harassed by their efforts. They 
Remember, most of them at least were skilled seamen, but they met their match in that storm. It was more ferocious than any storm that they had ever encountered on the sea. And add to that the fact that it was so dark. They were in a crisis par excellence, and Jesus was not there. Or at least it seemed as though he was unaware and not there. We know from Mark's rendition of this story that the Scripture says Jesus, remember, is on a mountain. And supernaturally, he knows what's going on. And he sees them in their crisis. So he's aware of the crisis. Are you in a crisis today? Well, be sure that Jesus Christ is not ignoring your crisis. Be sure that He knows you're in a crisis. And it's not just that you're in a crisis and He's just some sympathetic soul interested in the crisis. Hold your place here. And let's go to the book of Isaiah and read from Isaiah chapter 43 some verses having to do with the care that God has for us as His children, and remembering that Jesus... We're going to see this more specifically before we finish looking at the John passage. But just remember, Jesus Christ is not just a God. Jesus Christ is God. That's the uniform testimony of the Bible, regardless whether you're reading in the Hebrew Scriptures or you're reading in what we call the New Testament. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, your Creator, O Jacob, and He who has formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Are you aware that if you have trusted Jesus Christ alone for eternal life, that you are His possession? You are His child? What would you do if your child were in a crisis of the magnitude or even smaller magnitude as these apostles? Would you be nonchalant about what was going on with them? Would you just sort of twiddle your thumbs and not act to take care of them? Well, certainly not. They belong to you. They bear your name. They are your children. And we, too, who know God the Father, through Jesus Christ, we are His children. Verse 2 says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in your place, Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored, and I love you. Wow. You are honored. I love you. This is God speaking. I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. This is the viewpoint of God the Father toward us. And let me suggest what's true to you today. This is God's viewpoint through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the God-man. 
And this is the way he viewed these apostles, and so he views you and me. One wonders, what was Jesus doing up on the mountain? We know as soon as he sensed that this mob, whom he had served a great meal to, was going to try to forcibly crown him king, the scripture says he fled. He went to the mountain. He's on the mountain. He sees what's happening on the lake surface. It would pro- probably been almost eight hours. It's in the watch of the night, which was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. They'd been out there straining and carrying on with all they had, and they were done. But what was Jesus doing? I'll tell you what I'm certain that he was doing. He was praying for them. Because, going back to what I mentioned earlier about Jesus' conversation with Peter and the apostles the night that he was betrayed, the day before he was crucified for our sins, what Jesus went on to say is, I have prayed for you. Now he turns his attention again to Simon Peter. I have prayed for you. Suggesting to you and me something very important. He just doesn't say, God bless all the people. He thinks about us individually. He is praying for you in your crisis. How do we know that? Because in Hebrews 7.25, the Bible says that Jesus Christ, our high priest, lives to make intercession for us. This is His reason for being at the moment. He is interceding for us to the Father. He's pleading for us. And He was pleading on behalf of His apostles. That day, Jesus is praying for you all the time, not just when you are in a crisis. And he has to permit the crisis to enter your life. And in so doing, what he's really doing, he's letting that happen to you and me so we can benefit by it. And so our right response to such crises will lead to our truly honoring him. And glorifying Him. Because we trust in Him in our moment of greatest extremity. Our time of greatest difficulty. Instead of becoming bitter toward God, we come to Him. And we trust Him. We know He cares for us. We know He's the good shepherd. Who, when He's missing one sheep, He goes to look for that one sheep. And so this is our Lord We obey Him, and it seems sometimes to get us into trouble. I like what G.K. Chesterton, the great Roman Catholic apologist, wrote. He was a journalist in Great Britain. In his book, Orthodoxy, he said, I like hot water. It keeps me from getting into trouble. I like that. Because it drew him to Christ. It formed his character. He became more like Christ as a result. And so it's true for us. We can become more like Jesus through our trouble as we trust Him in the middle of that great trouble. Here's the last thing that I'm going to mention this morning about crises. We try to avoid those crises in our lives. We know it. Instead of understanding their purpose, they're purposeful. We should count it all joy when we encounter various trials, as we've already seen. Trusting God to take that which is meant for evil for us, and He turns it into good. Is that what the Bible says? He causes all things to work together for our good if we love Him. We often, 
and our crises occur, find our crises occurring when we are obedient to the Lord. That makes it hard sometimes to accept, but it's true. And here's the last thing. Our crises are designed to strip us of self-reliance and to stir us to God-reliance. That's exactly what happened with these men. Go back to John chapter 6 for a moment. Verse 19, when therefore they had rowed about three or four miles, they beheld Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. Talking about adding insult to injury, they thought Jesus was a ghost. He'd sent them out there to begin with, and now they're frightened. And who wouldn't have been? There was a lot of folklore in this day and time surrounding the Sea of Galilee, stories about ghosts being seen by sailors at night on the sea as they fish that great lake. In verse 20, Jesus responds to their fear. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Listen carefully. The three little words, it is I, translate two words in the original language. Those words are ego. Ego is really the way it would be transliterated letter for letter from Greek into English. Ego, I, and I mean means am. I am. Exactly is what Jesus said. That should ring a bell to you if you know something about Moses and the encounter Moses had with God in a burning bush. And he said, whom shall I tell those whom I'm going to deliver from slavery and Pharaoh when I come before him to give him his orders that he's got to let these people go? Whom shall I say sent me? And what did the Lord say? Tell them that I am sent you. When Jesus says, I am, he's identifying himself. Who is he saying he is? I'm God. I'm God. And I'm here, is what he said. Do not be afraid. It's interesting. We don't have time to look at all the possibilities in the Old Testament. We could go to two places. In Genesis 26, 24, Isaac, the son of Abraham, one of the great patriarchs of Israel, is in a fear-producing situation. It's beyond his control. He's being stripped of self-reliance in order to be stirred to God-reliance. And God speaks to him and God says, Do not fear, I am with you. Fast forward several hundred years to the prophet Jeremiah. He's just a lad. He's a boy. And all of a sudden God speaks to him. He says, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. And I have a plan for you. You are going to be my prophet to the nations. And then, of course, this teenage boy, Jeremiah, is scared to death. And he expresses his reluctance. And then this is what the Lord says to him. Do not be afraid of them. I am with you. I will deliver you. He was talking about the nations. I'm sending you as a prophet to the nations. I'm going to be with you. I've got this. I've got you more importantly. I've got you in my hand is what he's saying. The Bible says, do not fear for I'm your God. Do not anxiously look about you for I'm with you. Surely I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious or righteous right hand. Do you know where you are right now if you're in Christ? You're in the hand of God. 
and no one can snatch them out of His hand. Jesus has got you in the best sense of the word. And He's going to protect you. Later in the book of Jeremiah, in the 42nd chapter, in the 11th verse, this is what we hear. We hear the prophet speaking to the people who are about to go into exile from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's been destroyed. The temple's been destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar had the practice of telling those who did the conquering of the nations surrounding to bring back the cream of the crop. And there were about 3,000 of the finest people who lived in Jerusalem taken into exile. And this is what God said through the prophet to them. Do not fear the king of Babylon. I will save you and deliver you from his hand. When God is with us, who can be against us? Well, the answer is obvious. Nobody. God was with these men. And he's with us in our crises, particularly he's with us. And remember, the crisis that you may find yourself in right now may be a relational crisis, a financial crisis, a physical crisis. It may be a crisis that's rooted in your own fleshliness, your own desire to control your life, and your efforts have failed. Remember that God has brought you to this place because Jesus says, this is not often quoted, the verse after it is, but the verse is very infrequently quoted. It's Revelation 3.19. Those whom I love, I reprove. That means I get on their case and I discipline them. Do you know it's a function of the love of Jesus, the God-man? It's a function of God the Father to discipline us As a part of his love for us, he knows what's best for us. He knows we need to be stripped of self-reliance and stirred to God-reliance. Were these apostles stirred to God-reliance? Well, we don't see it necessarily here. In part we do because in verse 21 it says they were willing, therefore, to receive him into the boat. But as we read from Matthew, remember what they did When Jesus got in the boat, what did they do? They worshipped Him. They fell down and they worshipped Him and they declared Him to be the Son of the living God. He is God. They recognized who He was. What this tells us is that they had to be willing. Isn't that what verse 21 of John 6 says? They had to be willing for Him to get in the boat. And they willingly received Him. The language is very important. The words of the Bible are always critically important. Not just some of the words. Some people say, well, only the big words are important. Look, all the words are important. They're all inspired by God. And we ignore some of the little words at our peril. But this talks about how they were willing to receive Him. Does that word receive ring a bell? What does John 1.12 say? But as many as received Him, namely Jesus, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Real faith is not just saying you believe. It's receiving Christ in your life and trusting Him for your salvation. 
Letting Him become your life. And like these men, the Lord would say to you and me, Receive me willingly. They received Him willingly. And look at the last statement of the text that we're considering together today. It says, Immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is an echo of the 107th Psalm 23 through 32, which talks about a group of seamen who go out to sea. And they were expecting to make money in their seafaring. But all of a sudden, a huge storm comes up. And they were scared to death. It says they were at their wit's end. And literally the text says, in the Hebrew it says literally, they had exhausted all the wisdom they had. And they cried out to the Lord. Do you know what happens when you know you're at the end of your rope and you're in a crisis and you cry out to the Lord? He answers. He responds to that kind of heart cry. In Psalm 118, verse 5, the Bible says, In my distress, I cried out to the Lord, and He answered me, and He made me free. What kind of freedom did these apostles experience? They experienced freedom from fear, didn't they? They experienced freedom from their own selves, more importantly. Because it was a step toward maturity for them that Jesus knew was necessary for them. And it's true for us. We have to deny ourselves, Jesus says, and follow Him. We have to lose our lives, Jesus said, in order to receive life everlasting. We give Him control of our lives. Christ sees as troublesome as they are, and they are hard, are not without purpose. In fact, they're the entryway into a stronger relationship with the Lord, properly addressed. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for this truth in Your Word that we've considered together today. We know that we act like immature disciples, All too often, when we accuse you of not caring when we're hurting, or maybe even not knowing when we're hurting, or if you know and you care, you don't have the power to help us, forgive us, Lord. And for those who do not know you who are here today, Lord, We're asking that you speak to their hearts and let this truth of who you are resonate and reverberate in the chambers of their heart until they cannot help but open their hearts to you and give you control of their lives. We pray for this today in Jesus' name. Amen.